If you have your Bible, you can open with me to Isaiah chapter 52, and we're gonna look, we're continuing a series in Isaiah if you're just maybe coming for the first time here to West Shore. We've been in the series for quite a while, uh, working our way through the book of Isaiah. We really do believe in the value of working our way through books of the Bible, because then we let the word of God dictate to us what we should be talking about rather than our own opinions and ideas, perhaps. And so we're working our way through the book of Isaiah, and we're gonna cover three chapters today with a specific focus on chapter 52, and I'll kind of explain the outline of those three chapters in just a moment. Uh, but I was, as I was reading the text this week, I was reminded a couple months ago, I went on vacation with my wife and a couple of other friends, and on this vacation, we're at one of those resorts where you get resort credits and you gotta find ways to use them. And so one day my wife said, hey, we have scheduled something great, and I thought, awesome, fantastic. And she said, you know, um, we're gonna go to the spa. And I was like, oh, the spa, okay, like, you know, what, what's happening at the spa. And my wife, knowing that I would probably be reticent to do what it is she had scheduled for me to do, uh, decided to try and describe it a little differently. She said, you know, you're gonna get your feet rubbed. It's gonna be great. And they're gonna do, they're gonna do, and everything she described had to do with my feet. <laughs> and so I said, is this a pedicure? To which she said, yes, but, but do it. You should do it. You should totally do it. And I was like, honey, no. Mm-mm, not doing it. Not interested. I, you may be a pedicure guy. I'm not man enough to be a pedicure guy. I am not a pedicure guy. So I was like, no, honey, I'm, no, I'm not gonna do it. Then about two months later, we're home from vacation and I decided to take my wife on a date. It's like a Monday morning. I take a little time off work and I say, okay, we're gonna go and I get the kids childcare, you know, and I said, let's go for breakfast. We go for a breakfast date and I say, guess what? I'm gonna take you afterwards for a pedicure because I know you love them and I'm just gonna hang out with you while you get a pedicure. I'm just gonna sit, you know, in the chair next to you. And so I'm sitting and, and we walk in and I don't know if the guy who owns the place, it, I don't know if he's the owner or if he's just an employee, but this guy is on me like white on rice, man. He is like, you know men get pedicures too. I'm like, yes, I know, I'm not interested. And he says, you need to do it. And he's like, he's, I think I was wearing sandals that day. And he's like, your feet are awful. <laughs> like, you need, to, you need to get your stuff together and we'll take that. And I was like, you know, it's just so, here's the deal. Thank you. But no, I had to turn this guy down like 20 times. Uh, and I finally just said, look, it's never, it, look, the reality is it's never been my ambition to have beautiful feet. Okay? <laughs> it's never been my ambition. Never once ever in my life have I said, you know what I want? Pretty feet, beautiful feet. And then I read this passage in Isaiah that we're gonna look at today. And I realized that I absolutely do have a goal of having beautiful feet, just not in the way this guy thought he was gonna give them to me. You have come today, whether you knew it or not, for a spiritual pedicure, okay? And that's what's gonna take place today. We're gonna talk about what it means. You'll see what I mean in a moment. As we read Isaiah, and we'll read Paul in Romans chapter 10, quoting Isaiah 52 and saying, how beautiful are the feet. How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news, the good news of the gospel. Uh, and so we wanna talk today just about what it means and how we acquire more beautiful feet, uh, spiritually speaking. Like how do we become people who walk with God and proclaim the gospel in such a way that those to whom we proclaim it, uh, at least some, would say, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful for you that I would say you have beautiful feet. Now you recognize that image is a really powerful one because feet are not the prettiest part of our bodies. Like, I, I don't know too many people that would say, you know what part of my body I think is really the most beautiful? My feet, right? And so when the gospel writers, and when Paul says in Romans 10, like, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings the good news of what Jesus Christ has done through his crucifixion and resurrection, that he can purchase a life for you and redeem you and, and save you. 
how beautiful are the feet of that person? What he's saying is even probably the ugliest part of your body is considered beautiful by the, by the absolute wonder of the news that you bring, that we would even call your feet beautiful for being the one who would bring that good news. So here's the outline of kind of where we are in Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah chapter 49, we looked at this section where Isaiah has essentially said to the people of Israel and to us, he says, you, you have not been the true servant of God that God has called you to be. You haven't been faithful to the things God has called you to do, to what he's called you to be. And in fact, you never could have been that. And because that's the case, God is raising up a true and better servant. And in Isaiah 49, he described him to us. He said, he is going to be able to do what you could never do. Now we know, looking back at this point in history, uh, about what Isaiah was talking about, we know that he was talking about Jesus and describing him to us. And so we're in this section of Isaiah where we're getting this description of what Isaiah calls the true and better servant of God. The, the, the servant that we could never be, Jesus has come to be for us, a completely faithful and perfect servant of God. And then in Isaiah chapter 50, kind of where we're beginning today, he, he just sort of doubles down on that description. He says, again, you have failed to be what it is that you should have been and really could never be. And so let me describe again this true and better servant for you. So he does that in chapter 50 as sort of a, a recap of what he talked about in chapter 49. Let me encourage you, what we're gonna talk about today doesn't make a ton of sense unless you are convicted that Jesus is the true and better servant that we believe him to be. So for what it's worth, uh, you might wanna go back and listen to last week, or, or at least just go back and read Isaiah 49. Uh, just go back and look at it again and say, yes, this is who Jesus is. He is remarkable. That was our whole goal last week, is just to say, do you see how remarkable King Jesus is? And then in Isaiah 50, he kind of repeats some of those themes. And then in Isaiah 51, he paints this beautiful picture of how his salvation, God's salvation, and his righteousness are going to be brought into the world through this true and better servant. He says, this is the true and better servant, and rest assured that I am going to save. That's what God is saying directly to the nation of Israel. Who's, he's saying, I'm gonna bring you out of exile, and I'm gonna save you from where you are, but I'm gonna do a work that's broader than just a national level physical salvation of a people, removing them from one place where they live in slavery and exile and bringing them back to their home in the earth. He says, I'm, the way he describes the salvation he's going to work in Isaiah 51 is to say, I'm going to not just save you from a, a physical earthly enemy, I'm gonna save you from sin and death. And this salvation is gonna be so broad and so big that it's gonna be not just for you, Israel, it's gonna be for every person from every tribe, from every nation, speaking with every tongue. It's for all the peoples of the earth. That's the salvation I'm gonna paint a picture of in Isaiah 51. And then he's gonna to come to Isaiah 52 where we're gonna focus our attention today. Having said those two things, the true and better servant has come to be what you could never be and to save. And let me describe what that salvation is gonna be like and how it's gonna be for every people group. And then he's gonna come to Isaiah 52 now and he's gonna say, now here's what that means. It means that you need to be people with beautiful feet. It means that everyone who trusts in this true and better servant and experiences the salvation of God is called to be someone who carries the news of that salvation everywhere they go. They are to be a people with beautiful feet. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, good. I get nervous sometimes. And so what we're gonna look at today is how Isaiah 52 instructs us in becoming people with beautiful feet. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm just curious, and I'm guessing this is probably an accurate statement, that many of us 
find ourselves lacking confidence when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus with other people. That we recognize that we don't feel like we have the words or the way to explain it, or we feel like we're not sure how to combat certain ideas that are at play in our cultural circumstance and situation, and so when people bring up arguments, we're not sure how to deal with those or what to do with them, Uh, and and quite frankly, we're not even sure how to get into a conversation about the gospel. So I'm not going to cover everything I could cover today about how to grow in our ability to share the gospel with others, but I do want to touch on what Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, just six things that we will find in Isaiah 52 about how to become people of beautiful feet. Or to say it another way, how to become people who are able, better equipped to share this good news of God's salvation that he has worked in Jesus. So let's look at those together. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 52. And let's look at them. And uh, we'll start by reading verses 7 through 12. So they say this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So there you see the beautiful feet. Who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart and go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So as I said, I think there's at least six things we can look at in those six verses that help us understand how we can grow in being people of beautiful feet. And the first one is this. Remember that you bring the possibility of peace and happiness to others when you tell them about Jesus. Remember that you bring the possibility of peace and happiness to others when you tell them about Jesus. We are in somewhat of a unique time in our cultural day and age where um, the ideas of relativism really kind of rule and reign in our culture. Now, if you don't know what relativism is, I'll just define it this way. Relativism, I guarantee you've bumped up against it. It's essentially the statement like, I can believe what I wanna believe and you believe what you wanna believe. And even if those two things seem to be contradictory, it doesn't matter. We can both believe in whatever truth we want to believe in. That's sort of a, a broad description of relativism. It looks a lot It looks a lot like saying what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. It's a rejection of absolutes, right? That any one set of beliefs would be absolutely true for everyone at all time or for no one, right? And so um, the rejection of that idea with the onset of relativism, which has really been uh, coming about since the days of the Enlightenment. So it's been, you know, hundreds of years that we've been sort of... uh, this reality of relativism has been growing and growing and we're at a time in our culture where it really is the prevailing thought. So what you find, the result of that, the result of that idea is often that when you share the gospel with someone, you will get one of two reactions. That's good for you, but it's not necessarily what would work for me. As if to say the claim you have just made, that's fine for you to believe, but it doesn't have to be for everyone. It's not a universal claim that the gospel makes, and nothing can make that claim because I am sort of soaked or saturated in a relativistic worldview. Does that make sense? Okay, so the other response you often find to the gospel is essentially, it's a little more abrupt, and it's usually something along the lines of don't tell me what to believe, 
right? Like, it's fine for you to believe whatever you want, but do not tell me what to believe. Now, that last response is really the combination of the fact that we, are, we have a, a ruling relativism in our culture, and we also have, combined with that, sort of a dangerous combination, in my opinion, uh, a ruling individualism. So that because those two things come together and get married together, we sort of have the idea of no absolutes, and we also have the idea that we as an individual sort of uh, trump all other sort of... Um, that I am unto myself an island, like I determine all things for myself. And those two things together, you can probably see how relativism combined with individualism creates a little bit of a dangerous pattern, at least from my perspective, uh, seeing how it, it creates this sense of like, you know, we're not gonna have an honest dialogue about what might be true and what might not be true. I, I, I encountered this, I mean, I encounter it all the time. The most recent experience was being at home in a wedding and I was talking to some parents of a former student of mine from when I did student ministries and I was just asking how he was doing and the parents shared with me, well, he really has walked away from the Lord. He's not walking with Jesus, not interested in Jesus at this point. And I said, really, what, you know, what's been the cause of that? Or you know, tell me a little bit more about this. This is a, this is a student I love dearly. Uh, I was in my wedding, actually. Uh, and so I said, tell me what's, what was the kind of the heartbeat behind that? And they said, well, ultimately, he's just, what he says to us when we talk to him is, uh, mom and dad, I think it's incredibly arrogant for Christians to believe that they have a truth that everyone else should also believe, right? I don't think... That there, that there is one set of truths that can be seen as being the truth, right? So, you know, what would be wrong with someone who is faithfully following some other way, kind of as long as they're being a good moral person? Now, here, I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it's a helpful tool, and it might be a challenge. That might be you. You might be like my friend, uh, this former student of mine, who recognizes, yeah, I do think it's arrogant for anyone to claim to have an absolute truth. But I just wanna acknowledge something that we probably talk about quite a bit around here, and it's this, is we need to recognize, and, and I'll challenge you, you may need to recognize, that when you say there are no absolutes, right, or that it's, it is not okay for one group of people to claim to have any absolute, you are making an absolute claim to undo an absolute claim, and that's inherently contradictory of itself. So you need, to, you need to start to argue on different grounds. You need to think a little differently. I'll push you a little bit. If that's your worldview, let me push you a little bit. You need to think differently because you can't use an absolute to disprove an absolute. So the question becomes, everyone believes in some version of an absolute. I have yet to meet the person that doesn't make some absolute claim somewhere, somehow, some way in their worldview. So the question really is not absolutes don't exist or they do exist. The question is which absolute best describes the nature of the world and the universe in which we live. Which one makes the most sense of the evil we see in the world, of the goodness we see in the world? Which one makes the most sense of how we watch creation operate? Which one makes the most sense of what we see happening historically over, over generations and generations in the lives of people? What makes the most sense of the human experience? Now, I won't go into all the reasons why I think the gospel is absolutely the, the ultimate answer to that, but I wanna encourage you, rather than ditching absolutes, recognize you can't ditch them, you can't get away from them. So in, in rather than trying to ditch and get away from them to just sort of say, therefore I can believe whatever I want and you can believe whatever you want, do the hard work, do the hard work of examining the different claims, which are contradictory of one another, of the major worldviews that exist in the world. Secular humanism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, look at the claims that they make, see that they are in fact contradictory, that one cannot exist alongside the other, and then ask the question, which one makes the most sense of the world? 
All right, so that's my challenge. That's my challenge if you find yourself in that case. I hope I, I, I'm so glad that you're here and recognizing uh, that this is a good place to come and, and sort those things out. We love to have those kinds of conversations, right? So that's your challenge. Now, the other side to that, friends, the other side of it, just to get us back into our text, for those of us who are wanting to be people of beautiful feet, who are wanting to be people who grow in our skill with the gospel, because that's the cultural waters we swim in, I notice that we have very little evangelistic backbone. And what I mean by that is we are not very bold. We shrink back because we're afraid of being accused of being arrogant or accused of being a know-it-all or maybe holier than that, whatever it is that we're afraid of. I notice that we shrink back from bringing the gospel to bear in certain conversations. And this text, Isaiah 52, 7, is an antidote for that fear. It is absolutely an antidote. Did you notice what it says? Because in Isaiah 52, 7, it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then it says, who publishes peace. Now, if you publish something, is it private or is it public? It's public, right? The idea is when you publish something, you are, you know, a, a book is the most obvious place where we think about that. We are taking the words of the book, putting it on a page, getting it published so that other people can what? Can read it and can know what it says and can deal and wrestle with the ideas. And so Isaiah is saying, the one who publishes the good news of peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, that's the person who has beautiful feet. Now here's the, the, the antidote, uh, or at least the solution to get a, a little evangelistic backbone that I don't know how to have it any other way. You must believe that when you are sharing the good news of the salvation that can be had in Jesus Christ with someone, you are sharing something with someone that is for their peace and for their happiness. Now, if you don't believe that, I'm not sure why you believe the gospel itself. Like, why would you believe the gospel if you didn't believe it brought a different type of life to you that was the good news of happiness and peace with God, right? That's the same thing Romans 5 says when he says, I was reading it this morning, as we have peace with God. Do you experience that peace with God? If you do, don't you want it for other people? And so here's what that does. It reminds us that, that regardless of what we're accused of or what is said to us about our perhaps worldview arrogance to want to share with others an absolute truth that we believe that every person needs, that that in spite of the fact that we might be called arrogant for doing that, we're actually doing the least arrogant thing we could be doing because we're seeking the peace and happiness of the person that we're standing in front of. We want them to have peace and we want them to have happiness. That should also, by the way, that perspective should also guard us from becoming some kind of a culture warrior that's just trying to get people on a certain side of an aisle of an argument. That when we're dealing with, when we're sharing the gospel, we're standing in front of someone and our, our objective is to focus in on that person and who they are. We're not worried about other cultural concerns. We are in the moment with a, an individual person made in the image of God who we want to experience peace and happiness. And so we share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now perhaps again, maybe, maybe you're the person who really is, is uh, agreeing with a relativistic worldview and you disagree with me and you think when someone shares the gospel with you, it's, it's arrogant, but could I just shake that perspective a little bit to say to you, what if someone came to you with the heart saying, like, I want peace and happiness for you? Now you may disagree with how that peace and happiness comes about, but do you really get angry with the person who wants peace and happiness for you? I, I hope not. There's, there's always grounds for good conversation and dialogue around whether it's true or whether it's not true. But know that, that those who have the heart of God 
who want to have beautiful feet, they come to you as an ambassador of peace and happiness for you on your behalf. We screw that up all the time, don't we, church? Sometimes we, we make it about something else. I don't know what else we make it about, but it should be about seeking peace and happiness for the person that we're talking to because that glorifies God, right? Okay, the second thing that we see here in Isaiah about becoming people with beautiful feet is that we need to remember the necessity of the gospel is what makes your feet beautiful. So in Isaiah 52, seven, again, the thing we recognize when he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then Paul says it again in Romans. So listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 when he says it this way in verses 14 and 15. He says, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, talking about Jesus. How is someone to call upon Jesus for salvation? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone telling them? And then he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, he's arguing that, that church family, we should be sending people out with the gospel. We should be supporting people going out with the gospel. We should be going out with the gospel with it on our lips, speaking it, because if we don't speak it, how can they know? How can the person who is waiting know? And then he quotes Isaiah 52, the verse we just read, 52, seven. And he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, what, what Paul is doing there is he's taking Isaiah 52 and he's going, because I know now that the true and better servant who's bringing that salvation is Jesus, Paul is declaring that the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, seven is found when we as followers of Jesus go out and tell others about him. And the thing that you need to recognize that's really important, friends, is that in spite of the fact that, again, that relativism that is sort of pervasive in our culture, in spite of that fact, the thing that, that causes the person, and not everyone responds this way. Remember, Paul got stoned many times for sharing the gospel. But when someone responds to the gospel and goes, that's true, when they hear us say it and, and something clicks and they say, yes, yes, I need a savior and no one but Jesus could do it. When it clicks, they declare, how beautiful are your feet for bringing that good news to me. Thank you for bringing that good news. The reason they, they rejoice and exult and declare that you have beautiful feet is because they believe they've heard something that is not optional but necessary. That it's not like, wow, no one rejoices like this just because someone comes and tells them something that's kind of a nice little add-on to life, a little bonus, wonderful piece that they can have. You rejoice like that because you are starving and someone gives you bread. You rejoice like that because you recognize the thing you've just said, I would have died without it and now you've told me and I can live. It's the necessity of the gospel and being convinced of the necessity of the gospel that gives you beautiful feet. And now let me just say, there's a, there's a recurring trend, and it's, you know, things are cyclical in our world often, and philosophies are cyclical, and there has been historically in the church uh, a, a brand of thinking that we call universalism, right? And universalism, universalism in its classic form looks something like this. It is essentially the statement that, hey, because God is loving, at the end of everything, when, when he judges the world, <coughs> he will save everyone. Everyone will be ushered into his presence and it, it doesn't matter uh, what they've believed. So they might believe in Islam, they might believe in Judaism, they might believe in secular humanism, they might believe in Christianity, but at the end of the day, everyone's going to be okay with God. And that's gonna happen because God is loving. Now, there, here's the response to that idea, to that classic universalism, right? 
The response is to say, you may be right on all the grounds except Christianity. You cannot lump Christianity in with all other forms because every other of these world, every one of these other worldviews teaches that you will be right with God if you follow a certain pathway or if you do a certain number of actions, but Christianity teaches something entirely different. And on top of that, let's think about the logic for a moment of saying you can get in by believing in Jesus or you can get in by believing in Muhammad or you can get in by believing in the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment of Buddhism. All of it, it doesn't matter, you can get in. If there were multiple ways to be reconciled to God, it would be incredibly cruel for him to sacrifice his son as one of those ways. If Jesus is one way among many, the absolute horror of the death of Jesus makes God awful. Think for a moment, I know I've said this before, but think for a moment, those of you who have children, if, if everyone in this room was under threat of death, and, the, and you could save them by sacrificing your child, perhaps, perhaps you might do it. You recognize that if it was the only way. If there was an option that you could sacrifice your child and save everyone in this room, or you could do some other thing, which one would you choose? You would do some other thing, or you would be an awful parent. If there were any other way. So the response to that, universe, that classic universalism is to say that the cross of Jesus cannot be lumped in with every other way of being reconciled to God. Now, another kind of nuance to universalism, and I'm spending more time and attention on these first two points, and we'll move more quickly through the last four. But this, the second response I want you to, the second sort of growing thought, and it's purported by preachers like Rob Bell, some of you may be familiar with that name, or um, by preachers, I wanna make sure I get uh, Clayton, this is his name, forgive me, I had it last service. Carlton Pearson, uh, they just did a Netflix documentary on Carlton Pearson, who's a, a preacher who kind of let go of the idea of hell and said, I don't think hell exists, and really adopted a doctrine of universalism. But the nuanced version of universalism that is sort of, um, has some cachet right now, at least in church circles, is this. It's to say, it's not that God's gonna save everybody by just, by just sort of saying you can get there by Jesus or you can get there by any other way. He's going to save everyone. He's gonna save everyone and he's gonna do it because Jesus died, but you don't have to believe in Jesus for his death to work on your behalf. So in other words, the idea is to say the cross is necessary. It wasn't just like there were multiple options. There's one way to be saved and it's through Jesus, but what you don't have to do is believe in Jesus. The cross is big enough to cover everyone's sin, regardless of whether they believe or they don't believe. Now, hopefully you recognize there's a, there's a strong challenge to that that we should be offering. And this more often is in church circles. You see this, right? People who over time wanna recognize, they see, they see goodness and morality in people from every background, which is not surprising, right? That shouldn't be surprising to us. But they recognize that seeing that, they can't imagine that God would, would send anyone to hell being good and moral, but the response to that is that no one's goodness and morality reaches to the purity and holiness of God, right? We have to have someone who bridges that gap for us. Now, <coughs> church family, the thing I want you to recognize and I want you to remember and equip you with in these conversations is to say, look, all throughout the scriptures, God says, yes, that Jesus' blood is sufficient for everyone, but that in order to have that blood cover your sin, you have to what? Believe. 
it's required. You can't take the blood of Jesus without the necessity of belief and say that you get one and not the other. Romans 10, 9, right before what we read just then in Romans 10 about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Did you notice that you have to do what? Believe. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2 says, you will be, you will be saved from the wrath of God and you will have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you don't like Paul in Romans, how about just the most famous Bible verse that we've ever heard? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, amen, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. Would not perish, but have everlasting life. The challenge with saying this sort of, uh, this version of universalism, that the cross will be enough to cover everyone. The problem with that is that it's saying, I want to believe what the Bible teaches about the atoning death of Jesus, but I don't wanna believe what it teaches about the necessity of faith and belief. And by, under, by undercutting the authority of what it says about faith and belief, you've undercut your authority to believe in what it says about atonement. You can't have one without the other you've undercut the authority of the very thing you look to for the argument to make. So just, I hope that's helpful. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, let's move quicker now. Those are, the, those are the most heavy ones and probably the most heady ones. But can we just look at some simple things about how to, be, how to have beautiful feet? Okay, because here's the next one we see in the text is God is at work in every person's life, so become a watchman. Look at what he says in verse eight. He says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. In other words, what he's painting is a picture of these watchmen on the wall who are saying, what is God up to? They're waiting for this proclaimer of good news to come and say, God has done a work of salvation, right? You can picture that. Like God has saved the people from exile in Babylon and he's brought them back. And so the watchmen are on the wall saying, Please, we can't wait. We're eagerly longing to see. And then they rejoice when they see it. And so the thing that I think we can understand from that that would be so helpful to us is that in order to be ambassadors for God that are effective in sharing the gospel, one of the things that we need to do is learn to be watchmen who look for what God is already doing in the lives of other people. You recognize that any person you interact with, God has already been at work in their life. So your job is to look for where that's taking place. Just get your radar up and say, how is God already at work here? What's he already up to? He's, he's given them his image. He's made this person in his image, right? You can do that by asking them where they see God at work in their life. And perhaps their answer is nowhere. And you can say, really, why do you think that? But just to engage them in that dialogue of questions. One of the most helpful tools that's ever been given to me is to remember that you can share the gospel in four words. Four, well, you, you use these four words and you have to explain further, okay? But these words, this is the story of the whole world and it's the story of every individual person's life. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God has created the world, made it, and made it good. Everyone he put in it, he delighted in. Fall, that creation rebelled against God and chose to reject him. And as a result, there's immense brokenness. Where's the brokenness in a person's life as there's brokenness in our world? Redemption, God has done a mighty work by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise from the dead so that all those who are, the, who are experiencing the brokenness of the fall and the separation from all that God intended in the creation of them and the world, that he has done a work to redeem them and bring them back, reconcile them to himself through the blood of his son, right? 
Where is God at work pursuing this person? How has he shown that he is pursuing them with the redemption that he offers? Because I guarantee you, he is doing it. You just have to look for it. It's like, it's like learning how to follow a trail, right? And see the boot prints in front of you and see where the twig got stepped on and to track whatever it is you're trying to track. And to say, I'm gonna learn to identify the redemptive work of God in every person's life I encounter because he is doing it and you can identify it. And the last one is restoration. How is God, how does God want to restore them into something greater and better and make them new as he declares he is making all things new through his son, Jesus Christ, and will one day ultimately accomplish that end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's a great framework for sharing the gospel and for identifying being how to be a watchman or a watchwoman who sees what God is up to. Okay, I told you we're gonna move quick. Here's the next one. Tell the story of your life with Jesus as the hero. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Thanks, honey. In other words, what Isaiah is writing there is he is saying and declaring, excuse me, he is saying and declaring that it is God who has done the work. It is God who has shown up and saved the people. They didn't save themselves from exile. He rolled up his sleeves. I love the image of him bearing his arm. He rolled up his sleeves and he got to work, right? And so the thing to remember about that is like when you think about your life, I wonder when you tell the story of your life, what part is God in that story? Like where is God in that story? The best evangelists are the, the best, the most beautiful feet are the feet of those people who know how to tell their story. And when they tell their story, they tell it with God as the hero, not themselves. I was meeting with a, a, a new friend this week and he was telling me about how he came to know Jesus. And one of the things he says, man, before I knew Jesus, I had, the, I, I had eye disease. I was like, what do you mean? He says, I just, my whole life was I, 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 I. He's like, I did this, I did that, I did this. I, I was so, he said, I was so proud, I was so sure of myself. I was the reason for all the good things in my life. And he said, God broke me down. He actually started reading the Bible, learned Greek to study in the original language so that he could disprove it. And the joke was on him because he got through the book of Acts and God showed him that everything in it was true. And he came to faith in Jesus. I love that. But what was so evident, sitting across the table from this guy, that he wasn't telling me a story that he was the hero of anymore. He was telling me a story that God was the hero of. And as he told it, I was like, I'd come to Jesus again if I didn't already know him. Because this is too good. Like, this is amazing. I was so blown away. I just was, I just adored listening to the story that he was telling me. And I adored it because God was the hero of it. Make God the hero of your story. You know, one way to, to helpful, uh, just a helpful, i give you a homework assignment if you want it, to do that is that I have a lot of people do this when we, when we work in leadership development or when we work in training for mission trips or the elders have done this. I say, we create spiritual life maps and I say, identify the five most spiritually significant moments of your life. Just identify the five things that have shaped you most spiritually. Put them on a big poster board write out a timeline, draw a picture, right, of what took place in that, and then ask the question, what was God doing when that happened? How was God shaping me? What was he up to? Because perhaps 10 years ago, I didn't see what he was up to, but now with 10 years of hindsight, I can look back and go, aha, now I see. Now I see what he was doing. And the more you identify that, who becomes the center of your story? He does, right, he does. So make God the center of your story. Last two things. He says in verse 11, look at it. It says, depart, depart, go out from there and touch no unclean thing. In other words, what he's saying is be pure. 
Be pure. Here's the thing I wanna tell you. This happens a lot in, in the church. We think in order to be good evangelists and relate well, we have to do things that are sinful. Now, it's not that obvious all the time, but we create patterns in our life and we say, I need to be able to relate to this person, so I need to be able to do what they do. But the thing that we miss in that is that we're actually supposed to look very different than that. And so God calls you not to be holier than thou, not to be self-righteous, to be loving and to be pure. And here's what will happen with that. I've found this again and again. If you choose, one, when you choose to obey God's commands and walk in purity, right, to obey that command, be, be holy as I am holy, when you pursue that with your life, at the very outset, it usually is off-putting to people, right? Whether you're being, you know, hopefully you're not being obnoxious and holier than thou, hopefully you're being humble and loving, but as you're being that way, just, just pursuing purity is very off-putting to people in the world. I find that again and again. But what's also interesting is when people get tired of the ways of the world and they get worn out, they will seek you out. They will come and find you because you will have been the person that did something different. So purify yourself. Come out from the ways of the world. Don't model the ways of the world. The other thing that you need to remember is when you choose something other than purity, even if it's like in the name of relating well to people who don't share our faith, when you choose to engage in things that are impure, what you're essentially communicating is the commands and the ways of God are not actually better. They're cumbersome. They're not light. They're not joy and life-giving. But when you walk in purity and choose to obey God's commands, what you're communicating is God's ways are not burdensome. They are life-giving and they are good and I want all of them, and I wanna walk in him. I wanna walk with him in them. You with me? Last thing, again, these are just (laughs) easy to say, hard to do, right? The last one is this. Remember that God goes before you and comes behind you. The last thing he says in verse 12 is this. He says, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, he says, he'll go before you, he'll lead you out, So they're coming out of exile, that's the picture. And he's saying, I'm gonna lead you out. And then, guess what? I'm gonna come behind you. Because if if you're worried about anyone chasing you down as you're going, I'm gonna protect you. I'm your rear guard, and I'm in front of you leading you. And the thing that we can remember, friends, is that we have have God hemming us in. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has hemmed you in behind and in front. He surrounds you. He protects you so you can put down fear. You can set it down. Now, I, I don't mean to say that it's, oh, it's just so simple, but we live in an anxiety-riddled world, a world filled with, with fear. We have a different place to put our fear down than everyone else. We have a place to put our fear down when we know that God hems us in behind and before. Now, those are just six things right here from Isaiah about how to grow in our ability to share the gospel. I hope some of them are meaningful and helpful to you, both intellectually as well as at a heart level. I hope that you find them helpful. Here's what you need to know as a church. The most important, the most important people in this church are the next 100 people that will come to know Jesus and become part of this church. Those are the most important people. So we spend immense time and energy equipping you That's why we spend so much time, so much energy, so much effort, so that you would be equipped to have beautiful feet because the most important people in this church are the next 100 people who will cross the starting line of faith and walk with Jesus. Now we need to sing to the Lord after that 
Team, why don't you come on up? Let's sing to the Lord. Why don't I pray for us? And then we'll be dismissed after that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray, if, I, if I've said anything, Lord, that is not helpful, just silence our ears to it. But what is true and good, whether it lands on us in a heavy way or in a comforting way, just let it land. And Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Take your word, apply it into our lives. Just knead it into every bit of the dough of our lives. We, we want that. I pray for my church family that we would be a people of beautiful feet more and more. And so now our, our right response to hearing your word is to sing back to you and to declare to you your goodness. So we wanna do that now. Hear it from hearts, not just from mouths, but from hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.